Hi, this is Richard. A quick note to our listeners that we recorded this episode on Tuesday, the 20th of April. And just as we were about to broadcast today on the 22nd of April, the Russian defense minister announced that Russian forces deployed, in his words, for training near Ukraine would return home. This doesn't change our analysis, but we did want to flag it for you before you listen. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about the conflict in Ukraine, and more broadly about hostility between Russia and Western capitals. Over recent weeks, tens of thousands of Russian troops have deployed near the Ukrainian border. This comes as a ceasefire between Ukrainian forces and Russian-backed separatists that hold part of eastern Ukraine's Donbass region has broken down. Moscow says that it's sending troops for training, but the military buildup understandably unnerves Ukraine and angers its Western partners. German Chancellor Angela Merkel has called on Russian President Vladimir Putin to pull back his forces from Russia's border with Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said the military alliance would stand by Ukraine. And we are constantly looking into how we can continue to step up and provide more practical support to Ukraine to help them defend themselves. The conflict in Ukraine's Donbas region dates back to 2014. Back then, Russia lent military support to separatist forces in the region, in part due to Moscow's anger at what it perceived as the Western-backed overthrow of its ally, Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych. That year, Russia also annexed Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula. The Minsk agreements, which were signed in 2014 and 2015, ended the worst of the fighting. But since then, the peace process has stalled. Russia-backed forces still control parts of Donbas, violence has often flared up along the front lines. In 2018, a new president, Vladimir Zelensky, came to power in Ukraine, promising peace in the Donbas. He negotiated a ceasefire with Russia. Recent months have seen that truce fray with increasing incidents along the front lines. I was clear with President Putin that we could have gone further, but I chose not to do so. To be, I chose to be proportionate. The United States is not looking to kick off a cycle of, ex- of escalation and conflict with Russia. So that was U.S. President Joe Biden last week announcing the latest package of U.S. sanctions against Russia. Since 2014, Western governments have rolled out several waves of sanctions. Some have been related to Ukraine. Others aim to punish Russia's alleged interference in Western elections, its cyber attacks, and more recently its treatment of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Lavalny is reportedly now in dire need of medical attention in a Russian jail. As the sanctions show, Ukraine is at the core of the standoff between Russia and Western powers, but it's far from the only cause of an increasingly bitter rivalry. To talk about all this, we're delighted to welcome on Olya Olika, Crisis Group's Europe and Central Asia director. Olya is really among the top experts on Russia-West relations and the Ukraine conflict. Olya, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Olya, we'll talk about the latest package of American sanctions and the wider dispute between Russia and Western governments. But can we start with the military buildup around Ukraine? What troops have deployed and where? So the first thing to keep in mind when we talk about deployments of forces and counts of forces around Ukraine is that Russia keeps a lot of forces around Ukraine anyway. 
when we're talking about the buildup, we're talking about um, some forces that have been moved in with, within Russia towards the Ukrainian border, maybe four or five hours drive to kind of a temporary base uh, in, near the city of Voronezh. And we're also talking about some deployments onto the Crimean Peninsula, the one that Russia annexed in 2014, which Ukraine also continues to claim as its territory. And there you had this very noticeable paratrooper deployment and also some satellite imagery suggests that there are a lot more aircraft there. But there's usually a lot of stuff on the Crimean Peninsula because that's where Russia bases its Black Sea fleet. So there's a lot of new hardware, but um, there was a lot of hardware around before too. So in this context, what do you think Russia is up to? So when you look at these force movements, it doesn't look for several reasons like they're planning an immediate invasion of the rest of Ukraine, right? The reason it doesn't look like that is twofold. One, the size and shape of the forces that this isn't, it, it's more of a contingency. We can do a lot of different things with these. You're not really going to want to invade Ukraine from Crimea with an amphibious landing. So it seems more likely that... Um, that it's something else. The other, the other piece of this is how visible it is. Because if you're planning a surprise invasion, you don't loudly and noticeably move a lot of forces around. And this has been very, very visible. The Russians say it's all training and that it's partly a response to NATO spring exercises and the NATO spring exercise schedule. But at the same time, they're also talking a lot about the Ukrainians uh, are preparing potentially for an attack on parts of the Ukrainian Donbass that are held by the Russian-backed separatists. So they seem to be at least, you know, laying the groundwork to respond to an ostensible Ukrainian attack, uh, even though there's really nothing that looks remotely like preparations for an attack on the Ukrainian side. So Russia's doing a few things. One is it's laying groundwork. It's reminding the Ukrainians that it continues to have escalation dominance. It's putting Ukraine on notice that if it sees something that looks provocative from Ukraine, or if it sees something that it wants to call provocative from Ukraine, it could respond. Um, and it's also reminding everybody that when Ukraine gets nervous for its security, its Western partners aren't its allies. They're its partners. They are not obligated to help. They have no treaty commitments to Ukraine. And they're going to say lots of very nice things, but they're probably not going to do anything, which is pretty much what we've seen in the last few weeks. And so, Olya, how is this viewed then in Kiev? I mean, as you say, the, the Russian posture isn't necessarily sort of threatening an immediate intervention but it's still pretty intimidating for Ukraine, right? Yeah, look, nobody likes to have uh, a country that is occupying uh, your peninsula and uh, backing separatists uh, in a chunk of your territory, building up its forces on that peninsula and on its side of the border nearby. Um, and meanwhile, saying that uh, it expects you to attack at any moment and it's going to intervene. Um, incidentally, to protect its quote-unquote citizens uh, in Donbass, who are people, uh, Ukrainian citizens, to whom Russia has uh, been offering Russian passports uh, for the last couple of years. So for the, from the Ukrainian perspective, they're very nervous. Ukrainian President Zelensky has been doing his tour of Western capitals and talking to people and 
asking about what kind of support he's going to get, uh, trying to make a case for uh, rapid movement on a membership action plan uh, for NATO, joining NATO, which nobody is going to promise him. Um, I think a lot of that, to be honest, is being done to keep these things on the agenda, right? So that it's clear that that is something he's talking about. And then quietly behind the scenes, what he talks to these leaders about is, okay, what can we actually do? What leverage points do we have with Russia? What is going to happen if we have a problem? What kind of support can we really count on? Well, uh, what is actually happening in Donbass now? It's still held by Russian-backed separatists, but what does life look like there now? And how much violence is there on the front lines? So Donbass is divided. Um, Donbass is this region in eastern Ukraine, uh, coal mining country, uh, for those of you from countries where there's coal mining, it looks about what you expect coal mining country to look like. And it's had about the economic problems that a lot of mining countries have had uh, over the last few decades. Um, so the uh, Russian-backed separatists control part of it, uh, two regions uh, which have declared themselves um, the respectively Donetsk and Luhansk uh, People's Republics. Uh, and then the rest of Donbass is in Ukrainian government-controlled hands. And there is something that looks increasingly like a border between them with both Ukrainian and de facto forces checking people's papers, um, giving them a hard time, harassing them as they go back and forth, which up until everybody locked down because of COVID was actually very critical for a lot of people living on the non-government controlled side of the line. They were able to still get some of the Ukrainian pensions. They were able to sell things. They were able to see family. They were able to buy uh, groceries at a cheaper, a cheaper prices than they could uh, on their side of the line. Um, all of that has been pretty much uh, shut off for the last year, which means that it was already a pretty difficult economic situation, right? You've got an economically depressed region. Then you've got a war in it. Then people take control over it who are um, pretty much pariahs to everybody else. The Russians funnel some support and assistance in, but it's not enough. Prices go up. Lots of people leave. You know, those that stay, they stay because they love their homes. They stay because they can't leave. They stay for whatever reasons they stay, but it's a very, it was a very difficult life for them and it just keeps getting harder. Uh, you asked about the fighting. There have been a lot of ceasefires and they've all broken down, but the one that lasted longest was the one put in place uh, back in July of last year. And honestly, nobody had high hopes for it, but it stuck. And one of the things that it did was, in principle at least, it required people to check with their uh, commander in chief before firing back, right? You had to go back up your chain of command before shooting back if you were shot at. It really did slow things down. Since the end of last year, it's been ramping up again. Um, and we've had several people killed, military and civilian. Uh, the big difference this time around is actually more people killed on the Ukrainian uh, government side than the separatist side. Um, you're not talking about huge numbers. You're talking ab about dozens. But, you know, for the people whose families this is uh, and for the people who are killed, that's... Uh, that small comfort. Could we just stay on Ukraine just for a moment more and talk a little bit about the Minsk agreements, these agreements that were signed in 2014 and 2015. And yet, you know, as we heard up top, uh, implementation has has pretty much completely stalled. So why is that? What is the what sort of explains the deadlock? So the Minsk agreements uh, set out a process 
for Ukraine to get uh, the parts of Donbass that it doesn't currently control back. But uh, they were signed, like most peace treaties, when one side was on the verge of losing, uh, was in very bad shape and really needed the shooting to stop. That side was Ukraine. So the agreements uh, were pretty much dictated by Russia. And Russia does not want this territory, right? Russia wants to make sure that it has a voice in Ukrainian affairs and sees this potentially as a way to do that. So what the agreements say is that Ukraine will give these territories special status with a lot of autonomy. And there's a lot of debate about whether that also means some sort of beat over Ukrainian foreign policy. And it will hold elections there. After that, it regains control. Now, if you're a Ukrainian, that's a terrible deal, right? Because if you hold elections and you give them the special status while they're still controlled by these people whom the Russians have backed, who are, who've been fighting this war against you, um, and only then you regain control of your territory, well, you're basically, you're just um, taking them as is. And that's not acceptable if you're Ukraine. So that has that has pretty much frozen things. Olya, could we sort of zoom out a bit and talk about the, the sort of wider geopolitical standoff? Uh, the US announced a new package of sanctions uh, a few days ago. These were related to last year's solar winds, this sort of cyber attack, this big attack on US infrastructure, plus Russian meddling in the 2020 elections, plus its continued occupation of Crimea. And as we, as we said, these come on top of many rounds of sanctions that the US has imposed and West, other Western powers have imposed since 2014. At the same time, President Biden said that he's open to dialogue with President Putin, with Russia. So what do you sense the Biden administration's approach toward Russia is going to be? I think the Biden administration's position is to try to balance... Um, deterrence, right? Keep Russia from doing more things the United States doesn't like. Uh, Compellence, try to make Russia stop doing things that the US doesn't like and maybe reverse some of the things it's already done. And dialogue, right? Kind of on that, are there other things that we can get along? And, you know, maybe the US can be helpful in Russia's peacekeeping efforts in the South Caucasus. Um, Maybe the two countries can collaborate in some way going forward in Afghanistan as the U.S. withdraws. There are all of the all of these issues on the table. And I think part of the qu- question is, how do you do this all at once? The other challenge you've got is, for instance, these sanctions that were imposed last week. They were all about things that Russia had done in the past, so they're punishment. Now, once you've said you're going to punish somebody, you're going to impose sanctions, you have to do it. The problem is it almost never works in changing behavior. I mean, I can't imagine a lot of U.S. policymakers thought um, on Thursday we're going to announce these sanctions and the Russians will immediately promise to stop cyber spying, election election interference, and they're going to get out of Crimea. Um, You know, I think literally no one expected any of those three things to happen in imposing those sanctions. So you do kind of have to ask, you know, what a strategy of deterrence and dialogue actually looks like. What are you going to do for deterrence and what are you going to do for dialogue? So let's talk a bit about Europe. Uh, It has also imposed sanctions and placed a great deal of emphasis on maintaining a united front. Can you talk a bit more about this? 
So for the Europeans, I think initially 2014, 2015, uh, getting unity on the imposition of sanctions was difficult, that there was real disagreement among European countries on what the proper approach to Russia was how much punishment was useful, how much this was going to hurt their own economic and political relations with Russia, which of course vary from country to country. There is not a single voice in Europe on Russia. You've got countries like Poland that very much see Russia as a threat, and you have countries like Italy that have historically seen Russia as a partner. So how you get all of those countries on one page uh, you know that's um, not not uh, not always easy to uh, to find a way forward. Russia helped by um, carrying out its military operations in Ukraine. Right, there's nothing quite like getting uh, getting some unity when everybody can't help but agree on the problem. So. The question since then has been, can you keep this uh, unity together, right? The sanctions that are in place, they keep, um, you know, they have to be renewed every six months. And they have been, right? Because I think there is a sense, there is agreement throughout Europe that they need to do something. Um, so actually, unity has been remarkably resilient, much more resilient than people expected. Oh, well, can I ask you to tell us a bit about the view from Moscow. How are these recent round of sanctions being understood and, and what should we expect from Moscow? So the Russians have been preparing their population for more and more sanctions uh, pretty much since all of this started. The narrative and I think the genuine belief in Russia is that this is part of a con concerted, organized very intentional campaign on the part of a U.S.-led West to make life miserable for Russia, to limit Russia's uh, power, to limit its influence globally, to weaken it, and sanctions are a tool. So rather than um, solar winds, election interference, Ukraine being the reason for the sanctions, they're the excuse. Uh, and moreover, the Russians will say, we did not do these things, right? No idea what you're talking about. The war in Ukraine is a war between Ukraine and the separatists. We are not a party to it. Uh, why are you sanctioning us? Um, and some of this is blatantly untrue, but the general themes of it are things people very much believe. And the more people repeat their talking points, the more they believe them anyway. So the Russians fundamentally believe two things that the three of us might think are contra contradictory. One is that the war in Ukraine is a war between Russia and the West, and the other is that the war in Ukraine is purely a war between Ukraine and separatist forces. Now, these two things cannot both be true. Um, I think of it as Matryoshka dolls, right? There's the big Matryoshka doll, which is the um, the Russian conflict with the West. There's the tiny Matryoshka doll at the very bottom, which is Ukraine and the separatists. And then there's the Matryoshka doll in the middle, which is Ukraine and Russia, which is um, really at the core of what the conflict is, in fact, about, you know, from my perspective as an analyst. And if you if you look at out from Moscow, obviously this is this is difficult to say, but if you think how President Putin, for example, or, or the people around him, you know, they, they've got a, a bunch of priorities and things that they're doing across the world, a bunch of disagreements that they have with the West. Do you think they see see those sort of dolls in the same way that you portrayed? How do you think they situate Ukraine 
in the sort of broader struggle. How important is what's happening in Donbass? How high up is it on the the sort of priority list in the Kremlin? The start of the war in Ukraine uh, was seen very much in Russia as a Western project that the West overthrew, you know, supported political forces uh, that resulted in a mob that overthrew a democratically elected government um, and then put their own people in. Uh, That this was done in part, in large part, to steal Ukraine away from Russia. Um, Ukraine being a natural ally of Russia, brother nations, uh, you know, for centuries, uh, shared history, similar language, uh, similar food. People in Russia grew up thinking of Ukraine as, you know, pretty much Russia, maybe a little different. Uh, so the notion of the notion of Ukrainian identity is very odd to the to most Russians and has been for a very long time. And Ukrainian independence in 1991 only slightly changed that. Um, that's different from Estonia or Georgia, where everybody was always quite clear on the fact that you're looking at a different culture, a different nation, a different language. With Ukraine and Russia, it was always fuzzier. Um, so for them, this really is it's a Western-backed project to take away something that, if not Russian, is as close as you can be to Russian without being Russian. So, you know, that that continues to shape it. Um and they do feel the, the narrative, if you read Russian writing, if you listen to the way that Russian leaders talk, they see the United States leading its allies and partner countries in a, um, a project, uh, an ongoing conflict that uses all the tools of national power to weaken and constrain Russia. Uh, And Russia is fighting back against this in Ukraine, uh, in Belarus, and in Russia itself. Uh, That's very much the Russian view of the world. Olya, could we come back to Ukraine policy in a moment? But can I ask you a sort of broader question? That's something something that always struck me. I mean, I have to admit, especially with the team around President Obama, uh, you know, some years ago, you know, some of whom are now, of course, in the Biden administration, was sort of how quick they were to to portray Russia as this sort of declining power. Uh, it was often quite striking sort of how dismissive they were, you know, even as Russia went into Georgia, into Ukraine, into Syria, meddled in U.S. domestic politics, fueled disinformation, fueled the far right, you know, in some ways sort of underestimated what Putin could do. Now, the flip side, I'd say, is that Russian influence in some parts of the world is quite limited. Um, you know, when there's news of, of Russia sort of in the Central African Republic or in Libya or in other places, that sort of changes the way the conflict is viewed in the West, even if the Russian role is not that important. So h- how do you think Western leaders should get that balance, sort of get that threat assessment right from, uh, from Russia? So I think it is, it's actually really important to unpack this declining power story. Because uh, I always ask, declining compared to what? Um, is Russia a weaker country than the Soviet Union was? Uh, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Right? I'd certainly rather live in modern Russia than in Soviet Russia. Um, 
is Russia a uh, declining compared to the 90s? In the 90s, uh, which is a time that for a lot of people, Russia was supposedly democratic, but Russia was uh, econom an economic basket case. Uh, it has its problems now, but it's certainly not a basket case, uh, despite those problems. Is Russia poised to continue to decline demographically, technologically, economically? I don't know. People keep telling me this uh, decade after decade after decade, and it doesn't seem to decline quite as fast as everybody thinks it will. And again, it does. It punches above its weight. It has shown a capacity to use military force use, you know, in a way effectively judiciously, with room to escalate, uh, as opposed to going all in and then uh, having a lot of problems. The other thing that you have to somehow reckon with is Russia's paranoia, Russia's belief that others are out to get it, which they sort of are, and sort of they do things that make Russia more paranoid, not because they're out to get Russia, but because it didn't even occur to them that Russia might care. So how do you reckon with that? How do you deal with an insecure power that nonetheless has the capacity to do things and to advance its interests? To which the easy uh, glib answer is very carefully. Uh, but you know, the, to unpack that a little bit, I do think part of the way to deal with Russia is to pay attention to what they say to recognize that they do have red lines and limitations and places they won't go, and then to negotiate. You know, it's a lot easier said than done, but it's possible. And again, I think the case-by-case -case basis is also the way to do it. I think there is something to be learned from the Turkey-Russia relationship, for instance, or the Israel-Russia relationship, that you look at these issues one by one. And yes, maybe there are specific trade-offs between them, but then you specify the trade-offs, right? You don't put all of it into one basket and try to advance the entire agenda at once. You sort of try to isolate your disagreements on one issue as best possible from working together on another, in essence. Exactly. And if there are trade-offs, you identify them and you plug that in, but, you know, not wholesale. Olya, could I push back a bit against the the idea of Russia as a kind of judicious, measured actor with whom one could have incremental negotiations and, and frame it this way, that sort of annexation is is one of the biggest moves you can make on the global stage, right? It's it's very difficult to negotiate halfway down from annexation. So is there is there a a perspective in which Russia is making sort of big provocative moves and then sort of testing what the response is in order to calibrate its its future foreign policy steps? Interesting, because I don't think Russia's that rational and measured in its actions as to be calibrating each step that way. I think the annexation of Crimea was somewhat whimsical, um, that, uh, you know, they found themselves in this situation. They wanted to do something. They, I think they intended to do in Crimea what they ended up doing in Donbass, right? Kind of having a de facto state on the, um, on the border and then decided, you know what, we're just going to annex it. Why not? Um, and honestly, nobody's, the Ukrainians formally say that they want Crimea back, that Russia has to give Crimea back. That's, not what the Minsk agreements are about. That's not what finding a way to peace is about. There is not any real planning on how Ukraine would manage a returned Crimea. 
Um, so that's not what anyone is explicitly expecting Russia to do. Uh, what people might be expecting Russia to do is allow for a little wiggle room for the Ukrainians and how they implement Minsk and to think creatively about what to do about these NATO and EU membership questions where nobody wants to say, no, never, but also nobody honestly wants to invite Ukraine to join anytime soon. Um, to have conversations and trade-offs about Black Sea security and Baltic Sea security and other European security issues that both Russia and Western states are concerned about to talk about conventional arms control in that context. So if it's okay, let's try and bring that back to Donbass. So what might an approach that does that look like in, you know, what is a, you know, such a core of the of this sort of bitter rivalry now between between the West and, and, and Russia? How, how can a, an approach that sort of isolates some of these broader disagreements, what might that look like in Ukraine? Is that even possible? So I think for Ukraine, um, Part of the issue is that the Ukrainians have to make deals on behalf of Ukraine, right? Western countries cannot make deals on behalf of Ukraine. They can promise things as themselves. Only Ukraine can, you know, say that um, we agree to a ceasefire. Only Ukraine can say we have agreed to these terms for holding elections. Western countries can urge, can support, can provide assistance, but they can't force any of that. I think it is important, um, though, for Western countries to determine what it is they want, kind of what their red lines are, uh, and not necessarily to immediately communicate them, right? Uh, a little bit of ambiguity can be helpful, but to understand how far they're willing to go under what circumstances. One of the reasons that they're so Western states, NATO, is so upset about Ukraine probably the main reason they're so upset about Ukraine isn't Ukraine. It's that if this is possible in Ukraine, might it be possible with a country that is a NATO member? That is what they're trying to prevent. So what does that translate into? Does that mean that that's all you care about? Well, no, but it means that you really do want this resolved. So how can, you know, what can you do to facilitate a peace between Russia and Ukraine? It's really difficult because what Russia wants is a Western commitment that Ukraine will never join NATO, never join the EU, you know, will always be at least neutral, if not in Russia's sphere of influence. NATO doesn't actually agree to things. NATO member states do, but NATO as an alliance doesn't actually make deals. And both NATO and the European Union are founded on the principle that they don't ever close the door to anybody. Um, so, you know, there have been agreements in the past that guaranteed long-term neutrality, uh, Austria say. The problem is Ukraine had been in that status for a very long time. Ukraine had said it was a neutral country. It was in its constitution. You know what they did? They changed their constitution. Uh, so, you know, it's not a permanent solution, but this... It's a fundamental challenge that's easier to resolve uh, if you do end the troop buildups and the, the coercion. And I think some of that is about finding a way to hold elections, to start implementing the pieces of Minsk, and to do it without Ukraine giving up its sovereignty. Um, I don't think it's easy. I think it's really messy. This wouldn't have happened if it was simple. If it was simple to resolve, 
But I think there are ways to move forward on Ukraine incrementally that eventually get you to a place where you can have a real peace. Olya, could we end maybe by just talking a little bit about sanctions? We have this position about sort of Western sanctions, US and European sanctions, that they they should be used as best possible to sort of incentivize positive steps in Donbass by Moscow, that Europe, that the US should sort of agree that if Moscow was to take steps towards ending the Donbass conflict, sanctions could gradually be eased in response. Now, as you and I have discussed many times, there's a sort of counter argument to that. The important thing for Europe is unity. It's holding a united line against Russian aggression. Once that goes, so the argument goes, it's very difficult to build it again. So if Moscow pocketed concessions, backtracked, might be difficult to reimpose sanctions. That's the counter argument. But of course, at the moment, we're sort of in a deadlock with nothing moving. So I, I don't know if you could talk a little bit about, about that and about what a more imaginative sanctions policy from Europe and the US might look like. Sure. I mean, look, unity in pursuit of a goal should not be more uh, important than the goal itself. If you look at the sanctions literature, if you look at the history, yes, making it very clear that if A, then B, if we see progress here, sanctions can be eased and laying it out very specifically, running a few tests and also making it reversible, right? If you fail, more sanctions will be imposed. Now, the concern is, yes, that it was so hard to get enough unity to impose them in the first place that, you know, the, how, how will we do this again? Well, you know, that's really, the, if you really can't do that, if you really can't pre-agree that certain actions will cause a response, you've got a real problem. You aren't, you don't have real unity. You don't have real coherence. You just have inertia. You know, I think if the, if the European Union uh, with the United States wants an effective policy towards Russia, if they want results, they're going to have to weight that higher than just the desire for unity because the one ends up undermining the other. I think, Oli, that's, I mean, that's a very compelling argument about, about the sanctions. I, I guess, you know, if you're sort of sitting in a European capital, you know, part of this is just about keeping Europe together in the face of what looks like, notwithstanding all the arguments about NATO expansion and what this looks like from, from Moscow, but what looks like from Europe's perspective, Russian aggression, and holding a line on that and boxing as best possible Russia in against, you know, election interference, backing of far-right groups, biting off chunks of other people's countries, uh, you know, all these sorts of things, and keeping European unity together to try to deter more of that happening. How would you answer to that sort of sentiment? So I would say that it's not working, right? That it's not deterring these things. That you have these sanctions that are in place, and they are tied to the, at least on paper, they're tied to the Minsk agreements, that the sanctions will be lifted when Russia implements Minsk. Russia's response to that is, wait, we're not the ones failing to implement Minsk. The Ukrainians are the ones failing to implement Minsk. So you've got these sanctions on us tied to something that a completely different country isn't doing. How are we supposed to take that? We take that as the sanctions are the sanctions were your intention, and Ukraine and Minsk are the excuse. In terms of somehow constraining Russia from doing other things, uh, what, for fear of other sanctions? Um, it doesn't seem to be working, right? Uh, they, um, you know, according to European intelligence, they are interfering in elections, uh, and they certainly are still supporting the separatists in Ukraine. So, I mean, look, it's it's hard to prove a negative, 
but I'm not convinced that they are deterring everything else. Oh yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This was outstanding. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I really enjoyed uh, having this conversation with you both. Thanks, Alia. Richard, I thought that was, as as always, a fascinating uh, conversation, but particularly here in terms of perspective. That that when Oya described the view from Moscow, how how different the world looked from some of the assumptions we make when we talk about foreign policy approaches to Russia and to Ukraine. Um, the idea that that there is a sense that Ukraine is actually an example of U.S. interventionism and U.S. Uh, adventurism in the region, if you will, uh, and and without one necessarily accepting that that is genuinely the Russian perspective. Nonetheless, I think crucial to understand that in order to think about uh, policy approaches to the crisis. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, and you could even even go broader than that. I mean, you know, it's easy to portray President Putin as a bit of an international troublemaker, right? I mean, in essence, as we talked about, Russia's bitten off chunks of its neighbours through proxies, you know, like in the Donbass or, you know, for that matter, in Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia, or by directly annexing Crimea, which, as you said, is a, you know, is a pretty extreme move. Plus, more widely, Putin has issues with the international system as, it curr- as it's currently set up. I mean, Russia tends to be very disruptive or obstructive at the Security Council, uh, Moscow often backs these sort of repressive authoritarian leaders that are doing things to, to stoke conflict. I mean, I just remember recently in Myanmar, the military junta after the coup is is really an international pariah, even among non-democracies in Asia. And there, you know, sure enough, days after the coup is the Russian defense minister talking with the military junta about military cooperation. So, you know, there is this side to, to Russia at the moment. Um, now, of course, it's easy for President Putin to point to things that resonate among Russians, the treatment in their eyes of Russia after the end of the Cold War, the expansion of NATO towards Russia's border, the deep insecurity many feel about Western Western strength, Western encirclement. Plus, more broadly, Putin can point to what he sees as Western double standards. You know, the interventions that we've spoken about many times on, on the podcast in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, to some degree South Sudan, Libya... Uh, some of which were were illegal and all of which were pretty much disastrous. The general instability that Putin can point to that, you know, that's flowed from US-backed regime change in different places. So you have these sort of dueling narratives and, you know, in many parts of the world, frankly, what are dueling interests between Russia and, and the West? And I think a big question, as we talked about with Olya, is whether Moscow and the West, whether... Washington in particular and Moscow can find areas, places to work together, even as they disagree in others. You know, it's a challenge more broadly for, for President Biden, uh, you know, with China too. Can big powers that see themselves as rivals find areas to work together? You know, I don't think this is an era of, of grand bargains. It's a time when these sort of big rival powers, and to some degree, you know, regional powers that disagree with each other. It's a time when they need to try to isolate their disagreements in, in some areas and work together in others. And, and in some ways, sort of international crisis management and many conflicts across the world will depend on them being able to do that. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. 
and I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org or follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly-Nambi. And thank you especially to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or a review. And we hope very much you'll join us again next week.